If you turn to Matthew chapter 1 in your Bibles, if you have a church Bible, that's page 695, and in the large print Bibles, 1070. Matthew chapter 1. Well, last week, as we uh, began uh, this uh, series in the book of Matthew, uh, we saw that Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. And if you remember, we uh, said that Matthew would have been extremely excited that he could write the words, Jesus the Messiah. As we looked at Isaiah's prophecy, we saw that there was a promise that the Messiah was going to come. And that's not the only prophecy. There's many, many in the Old Testament that speak of the Messiah coming, the one that would come and fulfill all the promises that God made to his people in the Old Testament. And Matthew, right at the beginning of his gospel, says, it is Jesus the Messiah. He is the legitimate king from David's line. Jesus, through this genealogy, is shown to be the one who could come and be the king on David's throne that would last forever. But it also shows us that Jesus Christ was born at a real time, in a real place, in history, and that he is a real man with human ancestors. Jesus Christ is a man, 100% man. And as we begin uh, to look at this next section, I want you to understand an important word that we actually see twice in this passage, but we don't see because it's not an English word. You know the word. The word is Genesis. Genesis. Genesis is a Greek word, and it means origin or beginning. Now, why do you need to know this word? Well, the reason is because the word in Greek appears twice. And in English, it's translated twice. Once it's translated as genealogy, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. And then it's translated birth in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. So it could read like this. This is the genesis of Jesus the Messiah. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. And then in Matthew chapter 1 verse 18, this is how the genesis of Jesus the Messiah came about. The origin, the beginning. Now why is that important? Well, it's important because it's there twice for a reason. You see, Matthew shows in the first 17 verses the human origin or genesis of Jesus the Messiah. He is a human. He is a man with ancestors. Jesus is a man. But we also saw last week that Joseph isn't the father. And so after reading in verse 16 that Uh, uh, that Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. That is, Joseph isn't the father. As we get to verse 18, we read this is how the genesis, or the birth of Jesus the Messiah, came about. This is his divine origin. And we'll see that that is what Matthew means as we go through this passage. Because in this passage, we see the divine origin that God 
is the father of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. So last week we asked the question, if Joseph is not the father, then who is? In verse 16, we we saw that kind of implicitly, but in this passage, in verses 18 to 25, we see it explicitly, who the father of Jesus is. And we see that I am your father. Or in other words, that's not me making a divine claim. That is God, his name is I am in the Old Testament. He is the father of Jesus Christ. And we see in this passage twice a very important claim that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It's a huge claim, isn't it? A massive, massive claim that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that he is God the Son. Is it even believable? Well, it wasn't to Joseph at first. And perhaps it's not to you at first either. But as we read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, I hope that we can see that this is very real indeed. So let's read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. This is God's word. And Matthew wants us to understand in this section that Jesus the Messiah is God the Son. If you take nothing else away from this evening, take this. Jesus the Messiah is God the Son. He is of divine origin, 100% God and 100% man. This is the doctrine of the incarnation, that Jesus is fully man and he is fully God. And Matthew highlights this with these two origin sections, that this is the truth about Jesus the Messiah. Now this is a truth that is, uh, throughout history, frequently denied. It's one of the truths alongside the resurrection that's perhaps the most denied truth about Jesus. But it is central to Christianity. The whole essence of our faith is based on Jesus Christ being God in the flesh. He must be 
100% man and 100% God. And that's because a, a, a man, only a man can be our substitute. That only a man can take our place and take our punishment. But only God is perfect. And there has to be a perfect man. And Jesus is the God-man. God and man in one. Who takes the punishment for our sin and can do so because he is perfect in every way. Because he is God. Only God can save us from our sins. And Jesus is God. And in this passage, we see how Jesus comes. Why? To save his people from their sins. And Matthew makes this abundantly clear to us as we go through this chapter. But it's not clear at first. And in fact, to Joseph, it is a complete mystery. At first, we see that the incarnation is concealed. So this may be a familiar story to you, but don't make it over-familiar. Let's immerse ourselves once again in this account in Matthew chapter 1. Don't lose the excitement uh, of what this means by over-familiarity. These are wonderful truths that are central to everything we believe about Jesus. So he begins with giving us this scene. Mary and Joseph are pledged to be married. Now that is uh, like our engagement, but not like our engagement. Uh, For us today, when someone gets engaged, uh, it is engaged to be married. That means there's an intention for someone to get married. Now unfortunately, in our own society in the last, I think, 20 years or so, engaged seems to be uh, like another step in a relationship with no intention to get married. But the idea of engagement is that you have a, a, a commitment to get married to one another. And there's usually a a date that's soon set after the engagement where you know the wedding is coming. But if during that engagement period uh, someone breaks up and it breaks down, there's no legal consequences for us. In fact, when I got married, I found out after the wedding that when Paula's dad was outside of the church with her, her arm in his and he was going to walk her down the aisle, he turned to Paula and he said to her, you know, it's not too late. We can get back in the car now and go if you want. I'm so thankful (laughs) that she did walk down the aisle and he did give her away and now she's all mine. But if Paula had said, no, I am going to go in the car. I am going to go. I don't want to marry this guy, which I would have kind of understood. If she'd have done that, what's the consequences? Well, I would have been pretty devastated and it would have been embarrassing. I'd be standing at the front for ages. But there's no legal consequences. Not so for Mary and Joseph. You see, when they're pledged to be married here, they are bound together legally. There's no turning back for this couple. Money would have exchanged hands beforehand. Uh, The groom's parents would have given money to the bride's parents, which would have, have covered the cost of the wedding, but also would have been life insurance for the wife if the husband passed away. They were legally bound together. A divorce would have had to take place in a court for this betrothal to be separated. And they would have waited up to a year before they would have come together, which is what we read in the middle of verse 18. They were pledged to be married, but before they came together. The coming together would have been when they would have had a wedding ceremony and they would have moved in together as husband and wife and it would have consummated their marriage. 
That is why in, in verse 19, by the way, Joseph is called her husband. They haven't come together yet. They're not married. They're betrothed. But it's such a legal binding thing that he's called the husband. And Mary would have been called the wife at the engagement stage. So they're pledged to be married. But there had been no sexual activity between Mary and Joseph. And Mary was found to be pregnant. Verse 18 implies, with those words, uh, she was found to be, it implies that literally she was found out. In Luke's account, he tells us that the angel came to Mary and he told her that she would become pregnant. And then Mary, we're told, goes to Elizabeth's house, her cousins, for three months. So by the time she would have got back to Nazareth to see Joseph, it's likely she would have been in the fourth month of pregnancy. It could well be that she was literally seen and found out. But Matthew tells us the secret in verse 18. She was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Matthew wants us to be aware right away she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. God is the Father. Now Joseph, of course, he didn't have this information. This is for our benefit as the readers. As far as Joseph is concerned, they're pledged to be married. His wife turns up back from Elizabeth's house and she's pregnant. Now he didn't think or believe that the Holy Spirit was the father. The only assumption that he could make was that Mary had been unfaithful to him. And this would have been confusing for Joseph. When you read Luke's account of, the God, of, the, of, this, uh, of Mary's uh, visitation, you see that Mary is a godly woman, and she's presented as such all through that gospel. It was a huge surprise for Joseph for her to turn up pregnant. It was totally unexpected, totally surprising, and he is in a total dilemma. Verse 19 shows him in two minds. It says, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. That means, faithful to the law means he wanted to do what the Bible says should happen about adultery. And if you were to read Deuteronomy chapter 22, you will see that a wife found in adultery was to be put on public trial and would have been stoned to death. Now at this time, stoning was not common, but the trial was. And the divorce and the public shame and all of that was, was what would have happened if he was faithful to the law. But he was in a dilemma because he didn't want to be faithful to the law and he didn't want Mary to be found guilty, which she would have been. It was obvious. There was no other judgment a court could have come to. He wanted to follow the law and adultery, but at the same time, he was concerned for Mary. He did not want to expose her to public disgrace, which would have been the case had she been put on public trial. He wanted to be both faithful and compassionate, and so there was another option. It's not in Deuteronomy 22, but it's, it was available to him. He could have a quiet divorce, where there would be just two witnesses that would uh, sign the papers and witness the divorce and it would be quiet and, and kept quiet and they could go their separate ways. And when in verse 19 it says he had in mind at the end there to divorce her quietly, 
That means, literally, he had come to the conclusion that he would divorce her quietly. So he had made his decision. He was going to divorce her quietly. That's where he had come. He wanted to be faithful to the law, and he was compassionate for Mary, so he decided to divorce her quietly. The incarnation was totally concealed. He had no idea. And, and to be fair, neither would we. Now, maybe this isn't the first time you've heard this story. I'm sure for all of you, you've heard this many times before. But don't lose the, the sense of what is going on here. This is a total shock, isn't it? Mary was pregnant, but she was still a virgin. Mary was pregnant, but she was still a virgin. Think about that. I mean, it's mind-blowing, isn't it? Now, one uh, writer says that these are very mysterious subjects. They are depths which we have no line to fathom. They are truths which we have not mind enough to comprehend. This is quite uh, literally mind-blowing stuff, isn't it? Mary was pregnant, but she was still a virgin. She was, con- it was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's mind-blowing, but... God is so much greater than we are. To deny these truths, it demands a presupposition about God, doesn't it? That, that God either doesn't exist, or that God is not powerful, or that God can only do things that we can understand, all of which are a really poor view of God. Nothing is impossible to God. Nothing. Even causing Mary to be pregnant while still a virgin is not impossible to the God of the universe. And wonderfully, the truth of the incarnation is revealed to us in the Bible. We can assume that Mary was Matthew's source, revealing what really happened here. And praise God, it was revealed to Joseph too. For in verses 20 to 23, we see the incarnation revealed. So look at verse 20. It says at the beginning there, but after he had considered this, that means... Uh, after he had decided what to do, something dramatic happens. Now, the, the authorized version uses the word behold, and that is in the uh, original uh, text, meaning, uh, wow, something amazing has happened. And that's what's happening here. Behold, wow, an angel of the Lord appeared. It's a real breakthrough in the story. Something awesome has happened. Joseph, is, he, he, he's decided what to do, but all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, when it says here that Joseph had a dream, it is not like uh, the dreams that I have. I'm I'm assuming not that the dreams that I have are the same as the dreams that you have. That would be weird. But the kind of uh, experience of dreams that I have, where I have a dream, I wake up in the morning, and I might remember some of it, and by the time I try and explain it to someone else, I've forgotten most of it. That is not the kind of dream that Joseph has here. This dream is stamped with certainty. This dream is divine. This dream is unambiguous. It is absolutely clear in Joseph's mind what is going on. This is not Joseph's imagination. This is Joseph seeing a real angel of the Lord. So this angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. The fact that it's in a dream doesn't make it less real. It is the way God has chosen to speak to Joseph. 
And he says, Joseph, son of David. Remember, son of David, reminding why Joseph has been chosen as the earthly father. Because Joseph is from David's line. He is a son of David, and therefore Jesus will be the son of David. So Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Now, let's consider that for a second. Why would Joseph be afraid to take Mary home as his wife? Why would he be afraid? Well, if he married her, people would assume he was the father. People didn't marry adulterers. They would assume Joseph was the father. This man who was faithful to the law and would have been known as a faithful man would have been tarnished with Mary as being someone that had had children out of wedlock. He would have been publicly disgraced. It would have impacted his life and his business. He would have been afraid to take her home as his wife. No one would believe him. Why shouldn't he be afraid, though? Look at the end of verse 20. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The second mention of that fact, Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is God the Son. And so the first revelation that we see, the first way that the incarnation is revealed is this, divine conception. It is divine conception. He is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Divine conception. But the second revelation about the incarnation follows from this because he was born with a divine purpose. So the fact of the incarnation is he was born of a virgin conceived of the Holy Spirit. The purpose of the incarnation is in verse 21. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Divine purpose. Joseph is told to name the child Jesus because the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. God saves. And he is the one to fulfill the Old Testament promise that we actually read right at the beginning of this service in Psalm 130 and verse 8. It's up on the screen for you there. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. You see, in the psalm, Israel is in deep trouble. And the root of their trouble was sin. And they needed saving from sin. And Jesus Christ is the one who saves his people from their sins. And we are in trouble. We are facing the judgment and the wrath of God. We are facing hell. And why? The root of all our trouble is sin. And Jesus Christ is our saviour. He saves us from our sins. And notice in this verse in the psalm, God himself will save them from sin. God himself. Only God can save us. And the purpose of the incarnation is that he does so through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ bridges the gap between man and God. The barrier of sin that prevents us going to heaven, prevents us being in relationship with God, is broken down because the man who is God comes and he takes our place on the cross and he credits us with the righteousness that is his so that we can have relationship with God. He takes our sin and we can have eternal life. Jesus Christ saves his people from their sins. He is the God-man who does this work. 
That's the purpose of the incarnation. So we see the divine conception is revealed. The divine purpose is, the, is revealed. But then the, uh, Matthew makes things even more clear for us. He shows us the divine plan. He breaks up uh, the narrative to give us a commentary on what's going on in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. That phrase there in verse 22 is a favorite phrase of Matthew. As we go through his gospel, Matthew is always quoting the Old Testament. He's either quoting it or he's alluding to it with what is going on. And this very phrase appears 12 times in Matthew's gospel, and three of those times are in the first two chapters. It's as if he's saying, this is a continuation of the Old Testament. Jesus is fulfilling everything that was said. But what we see here in this particular quote is that this is a divine plan. The the virgin birth wasn't just out of the blue. God didn't just wake up one day and think, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll make a virgin pregnant and she'll give birth to a son. No, this was planned all along, a divine plan. And the virgin birth was part of that plan. Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 to show this. We looked at this earlier on. Ahaz was the king of Judah, the Davidic king. He was under threat. He was afraid of his kingdom being destroyed. And Isaiah says, you can have a sign that will show that God will not destroy you. But Ahaz was a rebellious man. He didn't want to know. He didn't want a sign from God. But God said, I'll give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this child that was born of David's line, this child born of a virgin, fulfilled that divine plan that was given all those hundreds of years ago in Isaiah's time. The sign of the child is, the, is, is Jesus Christ. He is the one that shows Emmanuel, God with us. He had planned it all along. Jesus isn't plan B. Jesus was planned all along. And he is the king who is Emmanuel. He is God with us. God has intervened in the world in order to save the world by becoming part of the world. God has intervened in the world in order to save the world by becoming part of the world. Jesus is 100% God. Very God, begotten, not created. And he is God with us. One writer says that in Christ, God looks at us with human eyes, speaks to us with an earthly tongue, and touches us with a brother's hand. When I used to work in uh, IT and went to different businesses, there would always be, at some point in the year, a staff survey. And the survey would be to, to, to measure... Uh, how uh, the staff uh, were feeling. And there was always a question on there that went something like this. Do you feel that the directors and the senior leadership understand what life is like at grassroots level? And what that question was trying to reveal was, does the staff feel like the people at the top of the business know what is really going on in the decisions they make? And it's a good question because it makes good business sense that the people who are leading the business have staff under them 
who know what is going on, who know that they're cared for, and all of those kind of things. And almost always the answer would be no. But what about God? Does he understand my situation? Does he understand what's going on at grassroots level? Does he care about the messed up world that I live in and that I see on the news every day? The fact that Jesus Christ is Emmanuel is an unequivocal yes. Yes, he understands. Because he has lived among us. He has suffered as we suffered. And he did all of this that he might save us from our sins. Does God understand? Of course he understands. He's been. He has come. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, we will see over and over that this is true. That Jesus Christ lived as a man, but this man is God. And we will see like father, like son. Matthew shows us Jesus is God. It was concealed, but it was revealed. He is Emmanuel. We see divine conception, purpose and plan. But as we come to the truth of the incarnation, the question that we might be left with is, so what? So what? Yes, Jesus is God, but what does it mean for me? Well, Joseph shows us the answer to that question. Joseph shows us the so what. And that so what is obedience. We see the incarnation is responded to. Look at verses uh, 24 and 25. It says, When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. You see this man, he's completely changed. He, 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 he doesn't see the incarnation. It's total mystery to him. But God speaks to him. God comes and God speaks. And when he hears the voice of God, he is transformed. This man who was fearful and in a dire situation is changed into a man of purpose and obedience. He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. You know, and it was a command, by the way. You know, when when the angel said to Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. What he, he wasn't saying, you know what, Joseph, don't be scared. If you want to take Mary home as your wife, it'll be okay. Don't worry about it. You can still marry her. It'll be all right. It was a command. He wasn't saying, don't be afraid, it'll be okay. He was saying that, but he was also saying, marry her. Take her home as your wife. And we see that in verse 24. He did what the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. And that one is the first of three ways he obeyed the Lord. So he took Mary home as his wife is the first way he obeyed the command. So he went from betrothal to the full wedding. They went from betrothal to living together as husband and wife. We're not told how the village responded to the pregnancy. We're not told whether Mary hid it. Uh, We don't know, but we do know that at some point, uh, fairly soon, they went on the journey to Bethlehem because of the census from Caesar Augustus. But in verse 25, we see the second obedience. 
he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. Now, why is this, why is this important? Well, Matthew is highlighting in another way here that Joseph is not the father of Jesus Christ. Joseph had to obey it as a command. Now, it was a command. In a betrothal period, you're waiting to be married. And when you get married, you consummate the marriage. I've not met anybody yet who on their wedding day tells me, oh, I'm married now and I've still got to wait before I can consummate my marriage. It's something you look forward to on your wedding day. Not something that's denied you, but not for Joseph. He had to wait till she gave birth to a son. You see, it wasn't only a virgin who would conceive, but a virgin that would give birth. And it was so that Joseph was absolutely never accused of being the father here. He did not consummate the marriage. He was not the father. It was impossible for him to be so. So he took Mary home as his wife. He did not consummate their marriage until she had given birth to a son. And then thirdly, he gave him the name Jesus. Now this is more than just fulfilling a birth certificate form. This is more than just saying to him, okay, you can be called Jesus. No, we looked at this last week. The responsibility of naming a child fell to who? The father. Joseph is obeying the command to give him the name. He gives him the name Jesus. He takes Jesus as his own son, his own child, in obedience. You know, this is a massive, uh, a massive obedience from Joseph here. Because Jesus would have then been given the right of the firstborn son. The firstborn son was given double inheritance. Jesus would have been given more than all of Joseph's biological children. He was saying, no, this also, I, I would take this child as my own. As my own son. He takes Jesus into his family. This naming of Jesus, this adoption of the child as his own, is total commitment to the angel of the Lord's command. Total commitment to take him into his own family, bring him up as his own son, and follow the will of the Heavenly Father. You see, Joseph obeyed, Joseph obeyed because he believed in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. He believed that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He is God the Son. And this is the so what for us too. It's not much different to Joseph in the sense that what is the response we should have? Total commitment to Jesus Christ. Taking him in to our own lives with everything we've got in response to him coming to save us from our sins. Paul the Apostle writes it like this in Romans chapter 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Jesus Christ is the God who has come to save us. The God who has left the glories of heaven to come to a sinful earth and live among sinful people and to die in our place, in the place of sinners, on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. 
How, in the light of that great mercy, can we give anything less than our whole lives as an offering to him? How can we do anything less than total commitment? Like Joseph shows here, he took Jesus as his own. Jesus was part of his everyday life all the time. And so should he be in our lives. Jesus should be in your life every day, every moment, every part of your life should be totally committed to the God who has come to save us from sin. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, he's your king. And we should obey him. Of course we should. He is our king. But here in this part here, he is the God who has come to us, God with us, in mercy who has saved us. How can we, how can we give anything less than everything we've got? The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is a central fact of Christianity. Without it, Jesus Christ is not God, and everything we believe just crumbles away. Our salvation depends on this being true. You know, brothers and sisters, we can disagree on all sorts of uh, parts of the Bible and, and, and love each other and, 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 and get on together, but this is not something we can disagree on. This is not something you can say, well, I don't believe that, I, I think something else. We can, we can happily disagree. This is not that truth. This is, this is a hill to die on. This is a doctrine to fight for. Everything we believe depends on this. And the early church were defending this truth from heretics who were saying that Jesus is not God in the flesh. And the early church uh, put a creed together outlining the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. They, they outlined these are the truths that everybody who claims to be a Christian must believe. And if you don't believe these to be true, you are not a Christian. And it's known as the Apostles' Creed. And it includes this truth. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So what I want us to do now, we're going to stand and I want you to affirm with me this truth of Christ being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, along with all the other truths of our faith. We're going to stand and we're going to say the Apostles' Creed together. And then after we have said it, we're going to sing God's praise because of the truths we've been hearing here and now. Uh, first of all, we're going to sing, uh, O come all ye faithful, which has the words of the incarnation that we uh, have mentioned. Very God, begotten, not created. O come, let us adore him. We're going to adore Jesus. And then we're going to praise him for the fact that we are never alone. God is with us. So let's stand and together we'll say the Apostles' Creed and then we're going to sing God's praise because he is worthy.